Good morning, everybody. James chapter 4, 1 and 2. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. There we go. Testing. You good? Okay. So good morning, True Life Church. It's good to be here, um, here at, uh, at this wonderful family of believers, community of believers. And um, I want to also welcome you if you're, if you're uh, watching by video today. Um, this morning we're continuing the study that Pastor Chris began just a couple of weeks ago kind of growing out of the, pat, the verse that says, um, that talks to, about Jesus being our Prince of Peace. And uh, the title of this series is The Prince of Peace, Getting More Than He Paid For. And we're focusing on this big word called shalom. In the Greek, it's arene. And these are two really important Bible words that taken together mean peace between people or communities, which is kind of what I'm going to be focusing on today. But more than that, in a wider sense, shalom refers to what peace brings, which is a state of wholeness, a state of well-being, a state of flourishing where needs are fulfilled and gifts are fully deployed. Shalom. And Pastor Chris actually has kind of been focusing on that the past couple of weeks in the series. Um, when he's been talking about our struggle not for relational peace, but our struggle for inner peace, uh, asking the question why we live with anxiety and worry and fear and what to do about it. And last week we began looking at the subject of relational peace. And I love the focus of the message last week on Paul's admonition of pursuing peace. I, I really love that little phrase. Um, and uh, the Lord convicted me many, many, many years ago about one of the most important things in the body of Christ being about relational peace, not just in a, in a local body, but in the larger body of Christ. And so I've thought about that little phrase many, many times, and the phrase pursuing peace helps us to understand uh, that as sinful, broken, fallen people without Jesus, peace does not come naturally to us. And even after we come to, to the Lord in faith, we still have, you know, that sin nature that we're dragging along with us. And so we have to pursue. We have to fight for. We have to pursue relational peace. We have to guard relational peace. We have to maintain relational peace. Well, today we're turning our attention to uh, the passage of Scripture that was read for us uh, just a couple of minutes ago. And the focus of, of this particular passage is uh, answering the question, a big question, that I have. I, think I have this question all the time because I'm Irish and Scotch, and uh, we tend to be fiery, fighting kind of people uh, by nature. Um, but, the, but the answer, the question is, why do we 
fight? I ask myself that question as a follower of Jesus. Why do I fight? Why do I lose my temper? Why do I get angry about things? Why do I lash out at people sometimes? I am I the only person who struggles in that area? If, uh, if, uh, raise your hand if, uh, if you struggle. Great, there's a few people that I'm speaking to. I, I'm happy to hear that. Um, but today we're talking about, we're trying to answer that question from Scripture. Why do we fight? And uh, that answer, that, that uh, answer begins to be given to us in this passage that was uh, read for us from the passage of, passage of James. But I want to think of peacemaking first uh, in the larger context and first of all say that peacemaking is witness. Peacemaking is witness. This topic that we're, we're studying is so important in terms of our witness as a church and our distinctive posture in the world that gets ahead by winning in force or power and by any means necessary and how the church is supposed to respond in a different way to, to, to how to get ahead, to how to be satisfied, to how to win. Jesus said this, he said, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. I think Jesus took that seriously when he spoke those words. And I know that the first century church took that seriously uh, because Jesus spoke those words. And I think that we as, as believers in Jesus need to take that seriously because Jesus spoke those words. And uh, it's interesting that in the very first century of the church, this, these things were taken very, very seriously. One of the greatest early fathers of the church was a man by the name of Tertullian. And he lived about 200 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it was at a time when it was illegal to be a Christian. And you may have heard about, you know, Christians being thrown to the lions. Well, this is when this was happening. It was during Tertullian's ministry uh, that, that people who were Christians were being gathered up and many of, some of them were being thrown to the lions. They were being sentenced to death by that terrible death in the arena. And uh, Tertullian wrote a book in defense of Christianity, and I think that this is one of the most interesting things that he appeals to. He wrote a book to, 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 to uh, convince the Romans that the Christians were okay, that the Christians did not need to be thrown to the lions, that the Christians were not a threat. And uh, this was one of his main arguments, and I just think this is a, an amazing thing that he shared this as one of his main arguments. His main arguments was to say to the Romans, see how these Christians love each other. That was his appeal. See how these Christians love one another. I think that I can uh, honestly say, and I think that if we're all honest with ourselves, we would say, uh, that this is a huge contrast to, um, to the church in, in the U.S. today and the church around the world today. The culture of the Romans was a culture that was not much different from the American culture today. The Romans were all about war, power, domination, being number one, getting to the top of the heap. But the appeal of Christianity in that culture was love expressed in loving interpersonal relationships that were so characteristic of the early church. See how these Christians love 
one another. And, and I, I think that, um, that the church today, we need to reflect on that very seriously and wonder whether this is characteristic of us or not. In fact, I would, I would uh, posit to you today that really it's not. In fact, I would say that it's, it's so bad interpersonal conflicts in churches and inter inter-church conflicts that it prompted in the early days of my ministry a, a pastor to write a book, the title of which was Great Church Fights. That was the name of his book, Great Church Fights. Because oh, can you imagine how, like his experience, this is a pastor who was probably my age when he wrote the book, and his experience of being a pastor all of these years was to say, I'm going to write a book about the reason why Christians in churches fight with one another, Great Church Fights. And uh, what was true in the early days of my ministry when I was starting out in ministry has become even more pronounced. I would, I would venture to guess that there are some of you here at this church, some of you here at True Life Church, because of maybe interpersonal, interrelational conflict that you may have had in a church that you were part of in the past. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I bet that that's true. I bet that there's some of you who, even as I'm speaking, can remember the pain of a conflict or the pain of a relationship that you had in another church that somehow disappointed you or some way that you may have been abused by church leadership or whatever it might be, and that now you've come to uh, true life hoping that this is going to be a source, this is going to be different for you. This is going to be a pace of relationship. This is going to be a, a source of love, a place where you can where you can heal from your pain and your hurt. And I like to use this phrase, uh, I think this is a great phrase to think of, you know, how we should posture ourselves as a church. Maybe you've come to, to, to this church, True Life Church, and you're thinking to yourself, this is my last chance church. I'm going to give it one more shot. Uh, this is the place where I hope that I can find the relationships. I can hope that I can find the communities that I think are so important for us to have as followers of the Lord Jesus. Now, again, I'm not going to raise, ask for, um, for a show of hands, but if that's you, I, I really want you to, um, to let the Spirit of God really speak to you today as we are sharing uh, the Word of God this morning. So, Conflict can happen in churches. It can also happen in families. It can happen in offices. It can happen in neighborhoods. But conflict in its most basic form always involves people. Conflict happens between people. Even in the big wars that are being fought tonight, fought in these days, it's, it's about people who can't find a way to live in peace with one another, right? And uh, one of the groups that we're offering in our new term of small groups will be looking at this very subject together. Uh, the name of the book is Resolving Everyday Conflict. Resolving Everyday Conflict. Now, there's a lot of people who have signed up for that group. It's Wednesdays. Um, if you haven't signed up, there's probably still room for you. But uh, I think that just the response for it is really encouraging to me because it shows me that there's people here at True Life who are really wanting to... to uh, Learn what it means to live in peace with one another. Um, so at resolving everyday conflict. Today we're going to take one of the principles of this book and we're going to drill down deeper. And I hope that this preview is going to get those of you who have signed up for this group that Danielle and I will be leading excited about what we'll learn, but also maybe some of you who are on the fence to jump in 
uh, to learn and apply these truths to yourself. And so uh, let's focus on this question, why do we fight? Why do we fight? Why does destructive conflict happen? And I've chosen these words carefully, destructive conflict, because, uh, because not all conflict is bad. In fact, conflict can sometimes be seen as an opportunity. In fact, really all conflict can, can be an opportunity when it's submitted to the Lord and when we deal with it in the right way. But what we're looking at today is the kind of conflict that sinks deep in our souls and it doesn't let go, that breaks our friendships, that breaks families, that breaks churches, and more. What is the root cause of this conflict? Why do we fight? And the simple answer is this. Destructive conflict happens when desires become idols. Let me repeat that. Destructive conflict happens when desires become idols idols. Let me read the verse that we started out with today in the reading, James chapter 4, verses 1 through 2 again. It says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. So we need to start by answering this question, how does a desire become an idol. How does a desire become an idol? I like the definition given in, um, in the book of Gospel Transformation that actually answers an even more important question, which is the question, what is an idol? And uh, the answer is given, uh, anything that we serve, love, desire, trust, fear, and worship apart from God to give us love, joy, peace, freedom, status, identity, control, happiness, security, fulfillment, health, pleasure, significance, acceptance, and respect. That's an idol. Let me read it again. What is an idol? An idol is anything that we serve, love, desire, trust, fear, and worship apart from God to give us love, Joy, peace, freedom, status, identity, control, happiness, security, fulfillment, health, pleasure, significance, acceptance, and respect. I just want to ask um, us to leave that slide up for just a moment. Just leave it up. And take a moment and do a little inventory in your own heart today. Are there things that you are serving, loving, desiring, and trusting, or fearing, worshiping even? What is the source in your life that is giving you love, joy, peace, freedom, status, identity, control, happiness, security, fulfillment, health, pleasure, significance, acceptance, and respect? Is there something? Take a moment, and Holy Spirit, would you reveal to us right now those things in our hearts, those things in our lives that are causing us to not worship you as Lord, but to putting our trust in other things. So I want to look at this, this uh, downward cycle to, from, from desire to idolatry a little closer 
And, uh, and the next thing that I, I want to drive home for us is that the wrong object of our desire fuels conflict. The wrong object of our desires fuels conflict. Uh, as I, I just said in this definition, those, these are the wrong ob objects of our desires. And I want to be sure to give credit to this section to Ken Sandy, who's the author of the book Everyday Conflict, that we're going to be reading together. Uh, these concepts are not my own concepts. These are concepts that I've learned from the book and that if you take the, uh, the group, you're going to be learning as well. And I, I want to start by saying that not all desire is wrong. In fact, the word says that when we commit our way to the Lord, God does what? He gives us what? Anybody know? He gives us the desires of our heart, right? And so the scripture does not um, portray desires as always wrong things. It's desires when they, the source of, of satisfaction for those desires are the wrong things. These are what, this is what fuels conflict, um, Part of the discernment in prayer is to let the Lord place godly desires in our heart. And so, so desires are, are not wrong. We're talking about desires that become our all in all. It's the, one th it's, it's the one thing or the one person or the one position or the one accomplishment or the one number in our bank account or our investment portfolio that will make everything okay. If that is your all in all, then that's an idol. And it can fuel conflict. Now, but uh, the other thing that is really important for us to know is that, uh, that conflict and desires can be fueled by something that's even a little bit more trivial. I want to share a personal story with you about our, our household. Uh, and I didn't ask my wife permission for this, so we might have to do some conflict counseling after, after this, uh, Pastor Chris. But anyway... Um, so Christine and I have very different lives during the day. My wife Christine works on the phone and she calls people one after the other from our house. So she's in our house or she's in my daughter's house. And while she's um, on the phone, she's also wrangling the children, which is um, why we have uh, my sister and brother-in-law here with us uh, this week is um, to help wrangle the children at home. But she's at home, she's wrangling the children, she's taking one call after another, she's staring at a computer screen that's her day. So my day starts um, with going out of the house sometimes or meeting with somebody for counseling. Uh, but around 12 o'clock, I get in my car and I begin to drive from house to house visiting people um, who I'm seeing for hospice. And what's very crazy about this and the trivial thing that grows out of this is that I come home and my wife will say to me, what do you want to do tonight? And inside, I am saying, I want to sit here in front of the television with a snack. That's what I want to do. What are you asking me? What do I want to do? And immediately, there's the beginning of a seed of conflict rising up in me because I think that I have the right, after going out all day, to be left alone. And she thinks that she has the right, after staring at a computer screen all day, to go outside the house and do something fun. Immediately, that is a potential conflict that is brewing right there. And so we're talking about these big things like bank accounts and numbers in, in our portfolio and accomplishments, but conflict can also start in these very trivial, small places. Let's remind ourselves what James says. Fights and quarrels come from desires and battles 
within you. The desperate longings of desire to be fulfilled by other than God leads to fighting, quarreling, and even killing, as James says. And James is not talking about necessarily physical killing. killing. He's talking about the killing of relationships. Relationships in conflict that are not dealt with effectively end up dying. We end up killing those relationships. Uh, and so, I, again, I, I want to take a moment of, for us to reflect together. Let's ask the Holy Spirit to bring to our attention relationships that have been significant to us. That are no longer in your life. That you have, in effect, killed because, of un, because you haven't dealt with conflict appropriately or because the other relationship did not meet our needs our desires our expectations or somehow stood in the way of fulfilling that desire let's just let the spirit of god bring that to your attention right now picture that person in your mind picture the conflict in your mind can you think of any i know i can sometimes we might have a trivial thing that God brings to, to mind, like I, I shared with you about Christine and myself. Uh, or um, this is a tell for me. If I go into a grocery store and uh, I see down the aisle a person who I used to be in relationship with, but now I am no longer in relationship with, has anybody had that experience other than me? What do I do? I want to hide. I want to make sure that I go to the, other, the aisles that that person is in. I want to make sure that uh, that person doesn't see me. Because why? I don't want to deal with this relational loss, this relational situation that I have in, in my heart. And so, um, so I'm just asking the Spirit of God, as, as I'm sharing these words, to bring to our mind really specific things in which we can apply these things. So Ken Sandy leads the reader of the material through a process that happens when desires go unmet. The first thing, and we're going to look at a little uh, slide that I created, the first thing is that we have a desire, a desire that has not been put in your heart by God, um, that is not met by a person, can start to consume us. Then that desire becomes a demand. A demand is when a desire goes unmet, and it can become a demand because we think that we deserve it. So, for instance, the example I gave about Christine and myself, or I work hard all day, so I deserve a little peace and quiet. I spend hours managing the family budget, so I need a new computer. The Bible says that we should save for a rainy day, uh, so we need to tighten our budget so we can have more savings. I have definitely heard from God about this new ministry and so I, I, that I want to start. And so I need the church to support me in this new ministry. I only want what God commands and what he's promised concerning our children. And so our children need to respect me as their parent. They need to follow the way that I've trained them in. All these little things and many, many more are desires. And they actually start out, as you can see, as possibly good desires that when they go unmet can become demands and then can grow into an idol. So you can spend a little time looking at your own heart and see where a desire has become a demand. And here's a couple of self-examination questions that you can ask to see if you're moving from a desire to a demand. So here's a really important question. What's the first thing that you think of when you wake up in the morning? Does it consume your thoughts? Does my mind constantly come back to this event when I should be able to focus on other things? 
Here's another question. Am I willing to sin to get this thing that I want? Do I demand, nag, berate, cry, complain, or lay guilt trips? Here's another question. Do I sin when I don't get it? Do I explode? Do I yell? Do I cuss? Do I pull away? Do I give the silent treatment or gossip when I don't get what I want? All these are little self-reflective questions to ask about these desires that are in our hearts and to know whether or not they've moved from a desire to a demand. And then when the demand goes unmet, we continue down the spiral to judging. Do I judge? When the desire is not met, the relationship with the person that we're making demands to belong to be, begin to be fractured. We start to judge that person. We look at how they are failing and what needs to change. And even beyond that, things that are no big deal before start becoming a big deal. This is something that, that is called injustice gathering. Things that didn't bother us before now become like a problem for us. So I judge and then finally I punish. I make the person suffer who we feel has wronged us. Now here's something very scary about idolatry that we need to think about. Idolatry always demands sacrifice. Idolatry always demands sacrifice. It always demands blood. Not necessarily literally, but ultimately the blood of relationships, the blood of family will be spilled when desires become demands that move to judgment and then become idols. And a relationship will, fight, will suffer. The fighting will become more and more severe and that relationship will ultimately end. This is what happens when desires become idols. So I want to spend the last few moments together in thinking about how to overcome this slide to idolatry. You see this part of the verse? This is an important part of the verse. It says, you do not have because you do not ask God. You do not have because you do not ask God. Now, unfortunately, some people have taken this verse to be interpreted in a mechanical way to say, if I pray, God's got to give it to me. That's actually another desire becoming a demand, right? Um, but what this is actually saying is that the cure for, for idolatry is to turn our attention away from people and things with the expectation that they're going to bring satisfaction, they're going to meet those needs, and turn our attention to God. Because he's the one who can meet our needs. He's the one who can bring satisfaction. As most of you know, I'm newer here at True Life. I've been here now probably about four months, six months maybe. And uh, as a newcomer, one of the things that I've been really encouraged about here at this church is that our pastor always brings us back to prayer. And, and this is what this passage of Scripture is saying right here, is that the key is our relationship with God, turning our attention to our God. Prayer causes us to spend time with God, and as we spend time, God shapes our desires to be his desires. And ultimately, we understand that he is the one who will meet our desires. He's the source of our satisfaction. God satisfies us in a way that people and things can never satisfy. So I, I want to share another quote from you from the book that I quoted earlier, the Gospel Transformation book, and I think this is such a great, great quote. Just let it sink in for a minute. It says, the difference between trusting 
idols and trusting Jesus is like the difference between seawater and fresh water, drinking seawater and drinking fresh water. Salt water never quenches your thirst while fresh water satisfies. Idols will always be salt water to a person's soul. Even those good things. Only Jesus is the living water that quenches our thirst. Now we're going to come before the Lord's table for communion in just a moment. But as we do, I want to ask us to do a little heart preparation for that, this time together. Thinking about the things that I've shared with from this, past, this scripture. And I, I want to first deal with, um, with um, people who may be here who don't know Jesus as Savior. You might be here and you're checking us out. And if you're checking us out, I want to tell you that um, the Lord is here waiting for you, willing to, open, willing to let you open his heart to him. He will come and have a relationship with you. And as you grow in him, you're going to find that, that he brings satisfaction to those longings of your soul. So if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, please see Pastor Chris or see me or see one of the, any one of the other leaders and say, hey, what Pastor Bill spoke about today really spoke to my heart, and I know that I need to open my heart to the Lord Jesus. We, we hope that will happen for you today. Um, but many, most of us here are Christians, and so I want us to ask the question, what are you looking to satisfy you? What are you looking to satisfy you? I know that part of the discipleship that God will bring into your heart is to go after those things in you. When, when Christine and I were first in ministry, and I shared this uh, testimony in the video that Pastor Chris made uh, of Christine and I, when we were first in the ministry, we, we, we left everything, financial security, the place that was familiar to us, our family, and we moved down to uh, Ocean County in order to plant a church. And we had this key vision in our mind. And, uh, and you know, for me, planting a church and having it established and having the kind of music that we wanted and the vision of the people that we hoped to reach, you know, that was the thing that would satisfy me, I thought. And about three years into the... Um, the planting of that church, a huge fight erupted in the church, and the church actually ended up closing. And so the Lord had to speak to me about, I went through that hard time, and the Lord spoke to me and said, is that what was going to satisfy you? Or am I enough? Am I enough? And I had to come to the place where I said to the Lord, Lord, if I never preach another sermon, if I never pray for another person, if I never counsel another person, if I'm never up front again, it's enough. You are enough. You're enough. So as we come to communion, I think it's so appropriate that we're sharing in the Lord's Supper today. Because communion is not just re about remembering the death of Jesus. It is about the unity of the body of Christ. That's an important part of what communion is all about. Uh, in one passage, Paul reminds us that we all drink from one cup and we all eat from one loaf. He's talking about communion and the fact that we are all doing the same thing here and everywhere around the world that communion is being celebrated is an indicator that we are one, that we love each other or we should be loving each other. And not only that, 
but communion is also, he also talks about recognizing the body in the passage of scripture that we're looking at today. He's, uh, in, the, uh, in the communion words of institution, I mean, he says that some of you are sick amongst you because you have not recognized the body. And many people think that that's about recognizing that the body, that the bread is the body of Christ? No, it's recognizing, it's, it's written in the context of unity, and so it's recognizing that as we share, we're sharing not as individuals, but we're sharing as part of a body. And we need to recognize the body. And then here's something that's even tougher. And Pastor Chris asked me to kind of be open to the spirit as I'm closing, so Pastor Chris, I'm being open to the spirit, okay? There's another very, very, very challenging passage of scripture that is related to communion. It's one that Jesus tells us. He says, if you go to the altar and you recognize that someone has something against you, leave your gift at the altar and go and be reconciled. So I'm going to ask us to do something really challenging today for some of us, okay? Now, nobody's going to know that this is happening. This is between you and the Lord. But as as we share in the Lord's Supper, we're going to be standing. There's going to be music playing. Nobody's going to be looking at you. But if you think that there's somebody that you're not in relationship, you're not in right relationship with here at True Life, before you come to that altar, go. Be reconciled to that person. Say, I love you. You're my brother in Christ. You're my sister in Christ. There's things that maybe we need to work out together. Let's do that. And then... Paul says, come and eat. So that's what we're going to do right now. We're going to share together in the Lord's Supper. And you may be here and you're in, at peace and harmony with everybody here in this room. And that's great. I think that's probably true for most of us. So come, share in the Lord's Supper. But if not, take a moment as we're standing, as we're preparing our hearts to Ask the Lord, is there somebody that I need to go and be reconciled with before I can come and eat? So I just want to share with you the words of institution from um, 1 Corinthians. Paul says uh, that I received from the Lord on the night that he was, that on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and after he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup and said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood given for you. Drink it as often as you do in remembrance of me. And so the worship team is going to come. They're going to play. And as they play, prepare your hearts. Examine your heart. Ask the Lord to shine a light on your relationships, especially this morning. And then when you're ready, you come and you eat. And you share at the Lord's table. You can do this on your own. We're not going to wait till everybody has received and eat together. Just do it on your own, okay? As the Lord gives you the freedom and releases you to do this. Lord, we thank you so much that you came to heal relationships. That's one of the main things that you came to do, to bring reconciliation between us and the Father and between us and others. And so, Lord, we're going to come and we're going to come to the table. And we thank you for the bread. 
that symbolizes your broken body. We thank you for the cup that symbolizes your blood that is poured out for us. But especially we thank you, Lord, that we all eat from one loaf and we all drink from one cup. And so, Lord, we are one. We're living out what you came to do. And if there's practical things right now that need to be taken care of, Lord, give us the courage to do that. Maybe we're supposed to get on the phone after this service and say, hey, we need to talk. Or there's people you just need to release to the Lord so that the next time you see them in the store, you don't have to hide because you're afraid to see them. I don't know what it is. Whatever the Lord wants to do for you today, let him do it. Let him do it. Lord, thank you. We ask for your blessing on this bread and this cup. May it sustain us and nourish us, nourish us to grow closer to you, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.